Welcome to series four of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto, a B Corp certified company that loves food, data, people, technology, and the planet. We are currently delivering millions of meals every single week, and our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner. Our purpose is to have positive impact on people and the planet. And each week here on Bold Flavors, I'll be talking to top company founders, CEOs and business leaders about their journey so far, what makes them tick and how they achieve what they're achieving. Today, I'm talking to Guillaume, the CEO and founder of Checkout.com. His company is one of the most successful startups globally ever, with soon 3,000 employees and a $40 billion valuation. He started in 2009, and then for 10 years, he didn't raise money and just focused on product and making his payment solution a part of merchant stack globally. In this episode, we speak about how luck played a massive role in the company's story, with fintechs all of a sudden getting popular and COVID then again accelerating the shift towards e-commerce. We're speaking about his journey from product guy to CEO and how he stays humble despite all the huge attention he's getting. Guillaume, huge congratulations uh, to, to founding and running one of the most successful startup scale-ups ever. Our latest valuation, I think $40 billion, you know, almost 2,000 employees or probably more now. Uh, hugely successful. How are you feeling? Uh, hi, Timo. So thanks for having me. I'm feeling pretty okay. This interview is happening on the back of a very long travel from California. So I'm feeling a bit jet lag as well, to be honest with you. But travel is part of my kind of life, considering uh, we have uh, offices and we have 20 offices in every single continent at this point. But uh, I'm obviously uh, uh, grateful for everything that we have achieved uh, with Checkout and, and deeply excited for all the things that we can still achieve and that are in front of us. And Gusto has been a long-term customer. I mean, you know, it's an amazing company, amazing product. Well done. Just talk talk me through kind of the idea in the simplest way. Not everyone listening in will fully understand what you're actually doing. Sure. So I think our job, if we oversimplify it today, is to help uh, merchants and quite often global merchants who trade in multiple countries to accept all the relevant payment methods all through a single API, a single contract, and a single reconciliation. In the UK specifically, I mean, we don't have that many payment methods. We have, you know, Visa, Master, a bit of Diners Discover, uh, obviously Apple Pay, PayPal, and, you know, a, a few others. But you will have countries where you have a lot more payment methods. And the idea is to be able to do all of this through a single interface and being able to pay the merchant a single payment that aggregates uh, all the different payment methods. Obviously, that's the, the very simple explanation. There is a lot of uh, you know, layers behind this that we have built internally, and maybe I'll zoom in in a few minutes on it. Uh, but I think like that's the simple explanation. Now, you know, um, uh, the idea or how we get to this is, I, I like to joke, especially that most of the big uh, UK fintech uh, companies are all our customers, but like fintech is a cool term only for the last five, six years. And you know, 10, 12 years ago, fintech, I think, did not even exist. But when I think about our journey is that I grew up on the internet. Uh, my first computer was an Amiga 500, actually in 1989, if I remember right. It was Amazing. like eight years old. <laughs> uh, and one thing is, and then I had everything. I mean, a 286, a 386, a 486, then the Pentium. Pentium was like a big step forward for everyone who was actually on Windows at the time. And um one thing that we've seen with uh, computers, I mean, for people who've been on computers for a very long period of time is that computers were just getting better and better over time. If we fast forward to this, like, you know, bandwidth gets better. So we're, we're there at the end of 2009. And um, it's still a time where like, you know, Facebook has just launched. Gmail is something relatively new. And most payment pages are telling you like, hey, don't reload your page. It might take up to 30 seconds. You still have payment pages that are redirect. And uh, our view was that because all these indicators, you know, have a trend that the world will transform and that the digital economy will just get bigger and the payment infrastructures are not that great from a user, you know, redirect, slow, uh, you know, slow loading pages seems to be a good business to be in. 
And, you know, myself did not have the definition of fintech at the time. I'm certainly not going to claim it. But in essence, our business is a true fintech. There is a financial angle, which is having the right regulations to clear payments globally. Uh, and we have them in, you know, UK, France for the Brexit contingency plan, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, Middle East here, UAE, uh, MTLs in the US, Brazil. I mean, we are in, in a lot of different countries. And then the tech element of having built the whole technology between our merchants, somebody like yourself, uh, Gusto, and all the payment methods, because our job is to basically offer a fully disintermediated, so direct to payment method connection in all the countries that matter. And I know it seems a bit easy, but you know uh, it's actually a pretty complex job to do. You were saying we, we have 2,000 employees, we hire 150 a month, uh, the world of, of payment is only getting more complex uh, just because there's new entrants, new regulations and being able to do this at scale and move as fast as the market is moving and quite often being first to market is actually drives value for people like you when we enabled typically, you know, Apple Pay and we were among the first in the UK mm -hmm. uh, to do it together. So I think like that's a, a long answer to a simple question. I will be honest with you, it's a, it's a very complex topic and we could speak hours about it, but, you know, I've tried to make it simple. Which which everyone appreciates. Thank you. And just take me back to the early days. You mentioned you had a thesis of how the world would change. Um, that has played out fairly accurately. But like, how how small was it in the early days? And then at what stage did you know that this could succeed? Wow. So this is a long answer again. I mean, I don't know if it's a fairly accurate. I will tell you one thing is that I think is that what we saw is that the world would be transforming. And I quite often say to my people uh, here at Checkout that we're still at chapter zero. I still think we're in the early journey of, you know, e-commerce in general. E-commerce uh, today, I think based on the latest stats, is 12% of commerce globally, which means that 88% of commerce is still happening basically uh, in cash. Uh, or, at a, uh, or at a point of sale, maybe with a credit card, but you're still having a physical transaction. You exchange Crazy the goods. Crazy to imagine, yeah. You exchange Crazy. the goods in person with your vendor, with your merchant. So when I look at this, you know, I'm, I, I say to my people, we're at chapter zero because, you know, that 12% has the shiftiness to go to like, you know, 50%. And, uh, and when I look at, you know, uh, uh, my children or other kids, I mean, my children are not in university yet, but... When I look at the, you know, kids in universities today and, and for our city, say like Oxford, Cambridge, you know, King's College, they are not likely to want to go and build like a, a brick and mortar business. Quite likely they will want to do something on the internet. So I'm a very big believer that we're still at the beginning of the journey. And the same argument that was valid 10 years ago is probably valid today. You know, the world will transform and it's only going to transform into one direction, which is usually more digital. Uh, I think like that's a fair statement. Then how we got there, you know, I said I wouldn't go into the details of the layers, but I think actually I have to now. So essentially in our world, and I'm, I'm going to have to oversimplify again. So I apologize for all the listeners who are very, you know, uh, experts in payments. The payment stack is a bit like a sandwich. And the sandwich, we can, you know, there's like three layers, two layers of bread and one layer of cheese. Uh, and I like the, you know, food metaphor because uh, we are, uh, you're obviously a, you know, food related merchant and I'm Swiss. So I'm going to use the cheese because, you know, like we're very Perfect. proud of our cheese Perfect. in Switzerland. The two layers of bread are basically the layer that connects, you know, the website or the app in your case to the bank or the acquiring bank. And then the second layer of bread would be what we call the payment processor, which connects traditionally a bank directly to the schemes. And these two layers are, you know, uh, technology layers. And the cheese would be the acquiring license or the, you know, banking license-ish or type that you get in the country in which you're operating. Mm -hmm. When you have the layers of bread, you can switch the cheese for the ham and you could move a UK license to a French license. Or, uh, and actually the French are also known for bread, but maybe uh, for uh, cheese, I'm sorry. So maybe we should say like, you know, something else that is like pâté if you want, or something that is typically French. In Asia, you could have duck, for instance, you know, uh, and like you just, you, the moment you own those pieces of bread, you can switch the licenses as you get them. And so now, um, you know, taking our journey, we built the first layer of bread between 2009 to 2012. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a way for us to basically connect websites and, and uh, you know apps to basically acquiring banks. So we used to own only this person, of this only this portion of technology. Used to work with like you know banks in Europe, and they would do all the acquiring and all the sec- the two other layers. Sorry, let Sorry. me Guillaume. Let me just clarify. So you were pre-revenue for a long time then, and how did you fund the first phase? Uh, no, so we were not pre-revenue. We were um, uh, the first layer of bread is already a you know a, a reasonably uh, profitable business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know another famous uh, tech company called Stripe mm-hmm. uh, has been the first layer of bread for up to 2017 or 18, I think, of their time. So mm-hmm. I think you know the moment you connect a website or an app to an acquiring bank, you're already charging a transaction fee. There's a lot of companies that are actually, you know, focusing only on that. You know, like everyone, you know, he's he's quite vocal on Twitter. Uh, the founder of uh, Bolt, he is just the first layer. He's and this is what people don't realize that I'm oversimplifying with three layers. Usually, you have a lot more layers. You might have checkout experts, risk experts, like you know, people who will do some form of data science. And so you have like the three layers can quite quickly become five, six, eight layers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is that what we did is that. We were, uh, obviously, when we were pre-revenue, which was 2009 and 2010, we were basically just working out of, you know, couches and had nothing. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, there is early pictures of checkout where actually we're working on the floor because there was no desk. Uh, and that's actually because our desks that we had ordered at the, you know, cheapest possible supplier, uh, which was ordering them from, you know, Southeast Asia got delayed. And so we worked on the floor for the first, you know, three to four months, part of our, our history books. But the truth is what happened is that our pitch at the time as a payment gateway was that we would say to a merchant, if you sell in multi-currency, uh, the acquiring bank that we'd work with would give you like-for-like settlement. So the bank would say, hey, euro and GBP, they give you euro and GBP, and that merchant would essentially be you know, able to do FX on his side. And we were starting you know, focusing, and when we started, our whole focus was on Hong Kong merchants. So all the big B2C platforms, B2C like business to consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason for this is that to this day, if you process with PayPal, they will try to force on you the settlement currency of the country so they can make a lot of effects. And so if I'm in Hong Kong, I don't want to receive Hong Kong dollars. I want to receive USD, GBP and Euro uh, and Australian dollars maybe. The reality is that our pitch was to go to these merchants in Hong Kong and saying, hey, instead of getting the Hong Kong dollars from you know PayPal, you can get GBP, Euro, uh, AUD and USD from checkout, what mm. do you think about this? And actually, it's a pretty good pitch because the effects quite often is 2%. So, you know, mm. even if you charge 50% for your service, you're already four times cheaper than your main competitor. And I think like this is something that has been embedded, by the way, in a checkout culture from the beginning is that we've always been super transparent, I think, on the fees and how we charge them. I think you know that, you know, probably better than anyone we don't kind of monetize ignorance or try to you know, leverage constructs that create additional revenue. And the revenue, when PayPal is saying like, hey, I'm giving you Hong Kong dollars uh, or Stripe GBP in the UK, for instance, they're basically taking advantage of you or their business model to force a settlement currency on you when they're in fact processing in multi-currency behind. Mm. Uh, and so they're ma- when you make 2% effects, I mean, it definitely makes sense from a business perspective, but this is something that I think is the wrong behavior. And we've built a business on this concept of transparency. So our pitch was to basically go to these big Hong Kong platforms. Hey, we will get you the multi-currency. You'll save a lot of money. You have a direct, you know, a, a, a good gateway company who is actually, who believes in the value of the payment gateway, which at the time was not that obvious as well. And fundamentally in 2011, uh, May to be precise, we signed a merchant which at the time was the third largest merchant for PayPal in Asia. You know, at that point in time, we were immediately uh, revenue and kind of, you know, profit positive because they were doing a lot of volume. They were doing, mm-hmm. I think, 30 million a month, if I remember correct. Mm-hmm. So if you have 30 million a month on which you're making, you know, 50 to 60 basis points, that's nearly 180,000, 150 to 180,000 of net revenue that you're making on a monthly basis, mm-hmm. based for a fair amount of developers. And what we did after is that, we grew the business steadily. I think it was always something that was important to us, but it's a, uh, you know, we didn't overspend. We didn't try to raise money immediately. Uh, but what we did, and this is what I was, I was referring to previously in the conversation is that in 2009, uh, the European Union introduced the payment service directive. Sorry, I'm being technical here again, but the payment service directive is basically the European Union 
trying to make the payment landscape more competitive in Europe by giving the opportunity to non-banks to be able to clear payments themselves. And so we took advantage out of this. In April 2012, we applied to the FCA, which was the FSA at the time, the Financial Services Authority in the UK. In December 2012, the FSA uh, gave us a license as an authorized payment institution. And I kind of like to pause there because we did this with like a super small team having not raised any money when some companies have trying to raise or have raised tens, sometimes nearly hundred millions of dollars try to do the same thing and didn't do it uh, or didn't succeed. We got it. And May and June of 2013, we have uh, received our principal membership of Visa MasterCard. So this is additional complexity. It means that the moment you're regulated from the regulator, you have the Visa MasterCard gives you their own certification or like an a license to basically connect to them directly. Uh, and that's basically becoming an acquiring bank. So there, if we follow back the, our food analogies, I have the cheese. And interestingly enough, there is an investor who approached us at that point in time, because you know these uh, registrars are obviously public and now we have achieved a lot. And they gave us a $200 million valuation, quite 20 million on 200 million. Uh, and we decided to not take the opportunity to you know, fund the business and continue to grow in our kind of Swiss, very steady way. And the idea here was just that if we were, you know, building a good company is about finding, you know, product market fit mm. and being able to kind of, I think as much as possible, control your destiny. Uh, and if we were raising then, I think, you know, it would have, we would have been probably more in a hurry to create returns and we would not have had the total product market fit because the product market fit was to essentially own the full stack is that if I have a payment gateway, and I have an acquiring license, I have the first piece of technology. So I can, you know, like have all the payment methods through a single API. I have the ability to have 100% of the economics on the clearing, but I'm still dependent then for innovation and time to market of new features on the second layer of bread, because I'm basically connecting all of this on somebody else technology. Uh, and what we did then is in 2013, we decided instead of raising money, to go back, at, you know, uh, I don't want to say go back to being scrappy because I think we were always scrappy. I, I like to think that being scrappy is a quality, but we going back to like, you know, a building and I, uh, I'm, I'm a product person at heart. So we decided to go and build our own payment processor. Many people told us this is impossible, including the schemes themselves saying this is a terrible idea. You're mm -hmm. going to take forever. You're not going to succeed. But we have this thing that, you know, when people tell us something is impossible, we tend to like to, to see this as a challenge. I led that project personally. So I was working closely with the CEO, the CTO at the time, I'm sorry. And uh, what happened is that admittedly, what was supposed to take 18 months taking took three years. So like, you know, fast forward, you know, 2013 to 2016 of hard work, trying to solve really complex uh, technical problems, connecting directly into Visa MasterCard and being able to own everything. But in 2016, at that point in time, we have the full sandwich. We relaunch, we have a single piece of technology, we control 100% of the economics uh, and payments. And building a big company is a combination of a lot of hard work, a lot of resilience and in things that you know, we could list here, but also a bit of luck. And 2016 is exactly the moment where most of the UK fintechs start thriving, Revolut uh, and TransferWise, which is now Wise at the time, and obviously we are there and, you know, they're basically, I don't want to say like fighting the banks, but they're like, you know, they're like trying to take customers away from the banks. So it would seem counterintuitive to go and process your payments with Barclays or Lloyd's mm. or RBS for that matter. And we were like, you're a fintech. At that point, the word fintech exists. We are a fintech. We can work together. It makes a lot of sense. And uh, we ended up signing all the UK fintechs. And actually we have most of the European fintechs at this point. Uh, on the platform at that point in time. And I think that that wow. was a big boost to our, our credibility. We sign all these big fintechs. They become great clients of ours. They're also, you know, we have a spirit of partnership at Checkout. And I think it's something where we're very different in some of the other, you know, more US-based payment providers where they tend to tell you what's right for you. And we tend to listen and work hand in hand with merchants because, I like to say that, you know, when we speak to merchants, our job is to solve complex payment problems for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and merchant feedback helps us build a better payment company. And so at that point in time, you know, we, we leverage a lot of the, you know, feedback of all these fintechs. 
And if we keep going in the story, now we start getting like a lot of inbound from investors. Mm. We keep saying no. And one of the other challenges we hear at the time is that, okay, you've signed all these UK fintechs, you have some big retailers, but you don't have any of the big US companies as customers. You know, you don't have any of the Silicon Valley companies and which was admittedly true at the time. And in 2018, uh, we win Netflix, Fairplay, big RFP, and they end up giving us like, you know, a huge amount of volume. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and at that point in time, I think like the company has 300-ish uh, employees. And I, I decide at that point in time that it's probably the right time to go and raise company because I realized as a CEO is that all I did was to keep my head down for like exactly 10 years, more or less. I work as hard as I could, travel the world, you know, like be uh, on the product side, but I have never built a global tech company. Mm -hmm. uh, there's only, you know, my knowledge is very kind of finite. I mean, there's, it's like not unlimited and I want to get exposure to people who have built kind of, you know, bigger businesses. And this is where I decided to raise the, the big series A that made a, a fair amount of uh, noise in the press, which was like, at that point in time, I kind of, before starting the fundraise, I write what I call is the equation of values that what am I looking for? And I'm, we have a big memo culture at Checkout. We love to write. My own directs always tell me that I write too many emails. Yeah, I am still an email guy uh, more than anything, you know? And uh, uh, the equation of value is pretty simple is that we want an investor who has an operator background. We want an investor who has a very strong network in the Silicon Valley. So we can assign more, more of those merchants. And now we have three out of the five fangs or mangs now actually with Facebook changing to Meta. We want somebody who knows and understand fintech because, you know, payments is only the first part of everything else that you can do in this, you know, digital transformation of ours, uh, mm -hmm. the world that we live in. And four, we want somebody who's got good relationships in Asia because Asia is, you know, the fastest growing uh, e-commerce markets or the fastest growing e-commerce markets in general. And so we raise from insights for the operating experience. They've IPO'd, I think, 65 companies. They know software better than other. DST for the network in the Silicon Valley. Ribbit Capital for the fintech angle. And GIC, the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Singapore, for all the Asia kind of exposure. And I'll say one thing. It was instrumental to the success that we have today. My, I still speak to my investors on a weekly basis, uh, the, the Series A investor. They have pushed me to become a better CEO. They have showed me things I didn't know existed. They have showed me, you know, like standards and just quality levels above anything I knew as a, you know, a, mm. uh, somebody from Switzerland. And they've been a, a big part of my success. So I'm, you know, uh, forever grateful to them because it's like they're the reason I'm here today. I always say this to Dev and my, you know, my board member and, and inside uh, uh, partners like, you know, uh, Series A investors that I wouldn't be here without you. So we wow, speak every I love, Sunday. I love that. Every Sunday morning we speak. It's actually a, a Sunday morning call. And and just just elaborate a bit more on the point. They pushed you to be the best CEO you can possibly be. Like how how specifically have they shown you what greatness looks like? So I mean, one of the there's a I always say to my children, and something I believe first is that you need everything in the world to function. And you know, there are, you know, if we look, take a you know good example, I'm not sure Uber would exist if it wasn't for Travis to be, you know, the CEO that he is and like, you know, somebody who has pushed and like kept pushing everyone. And I don't want to use the word aggressive, but certainly uh, uh, pushed people. Sure. What the investors have, I've always been indexing more on the humility and super hard work. Hmm. But I think what the investors have really given me, and especially Devin, if I'm honest, is the ability to think more strategically and just empower others a lot more. Mm -hmm. I think there is this concept that you, you know, you need to be able to let go that, you know, you can, first of all, you shouldn't be making all the decisions. It's the, when you think about what makes a company progress, it's the amount of good decisions the company is making. And you cannot be a single point of failure or like a, a, a connector to all these decisions. Mm. You need to empower people to make decisions. You need to give them the right framework so they can make decisions. They should be able to bring to you only the decisions that they cannot do themselves. And I think a lot of what I did after this was to, you know, first of all, surround myself with people who were more, you know, say just more qualified in the original team. And I have immense respect to the original team. Many of them are still here, by the way. And we're one of the rare companies where people have, you know, lost their C-levels and still work in the company. But what we did realize is that you know, I mean, I was never the CEO of a, a you know, 300 people company and certainly not 3000 where we will end up at the end of the year. 
And I think the same could be said of my CTO at the time, who's been amazing and, uh, you know, took an SVP of engineering role because he was like, hey, you know what? At this point, all of this is getting so, so big. I'd rather to go back and like being more involved in just dealing with engineers and code uh, mm-hmm. and then managing a global kind of tech company. Again, it goes back into the humility and the meritocracy is that people know when it's time for them to kind of pass the baton to, to somebody else. And mm-hmm. we went through, you know, to, to summarize it, me thinking more strategically and getting my head off of like the day-to-day entirely, really thinking like, what do we want to build with the company? Investors, you know, like showing them what, what good looks like. And like, um, I think in the first year, Insight was invested in a company, which was like pre kind of covid they spent like more than a thousand hours in London itself with their operating, you know, most people don't realize Insight has a team called Onsite, which actually, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, helps you, um, you know, run your company, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, Insight Partners is a very big uh, uh, VC investor and growth equity investor, but they're also a private equity. So they operate companies, which is one of the big things that attracted us to them is that when they talk to you about marketing, go to market, HR and things like this, they actually do this in companies that they own themselves. Mm. So you actually have a real counterpart. And because we always had that humility aspect, you know, I have no problem for people to come into the company and say, this doesn't work. It doesn't mean we're going to change everything. We're going to have our own opinion, but feedback is a blessing. You know, I think this is something that is very, very important. And, you know, we, we take all the feedback that we can, but, you know, thinking strategically, letting the investors give us their opinion, hiring well, building a long-term strategy, you know, outside of just payments, uh, because we do a lot more at this point and, you know, thinking about how to build an enduring company that will be here, you know, in, in 20, 30 years from now was a big part of what happened in the last three years. Uh, and this is something we also realized is that the company at this point is bigger than ourselves. We always joke about this, but it's like, we're very proud because we're building something that is self-sustainable. And because it is self-sustainable, it will like stay well beyond all of us. I mean, obviously we're making the assumption that Visa MasterCard are not being disintermediated, but for, I like to joke with my team is that it's the biggest duopoly of modern economics and they have proven to be pretty resilient companies. If that was to change, we would have to not change the business model because like I said, we aggregate all the payment methods through a single API, but we'd have to connect to the new winner as soon as possible and make sure that we have the right economics uh, against Mm -hmm. that payment method. Sure, sure, makes sense. And so effectively, what is it that only Guillaume can do? You shifted from running product, being hands-on, being the leader for 10 years. You raised some money that served as a catalyst. You shifted towards building a team, focusing on culture, people, and strategy. Is that a fair summary? I think it's, a, I mean, I'm, I write to my, my company quite often. Uh, obviously, we are, I still do my own hands. I do a coffee with the CEO for people who join. Now there's like not possible to have a coffee with every single person who joins. So we do them digitally. It's the benefit of like, a, a, you know, like Zoom. Um, the reality is that if we keep looking then through the timeline, we raised in 2019. In 2020, the, you know, like very unfortunate and sad event of COVID happened but it had the impact that we all know, and you know it, I know it, and most e-commerce companies know it, is that it accelerated this digital transformation or growth of the digital economy quite significantly. We probably did a jump of three, four years forward. So obviously we uh, ended up having um, a good year in 2020 from a financial perspective. Certainly it was very difficult for our people, the lockdowns and everything else that followed. And uh, you know, I think there was quite often we don't talk about enough of like the impact uh, it had on like, you know, I'm lucky I have, uh, you know, my kids, a house. When you're, you know, a young developer who left university and you live in, you know, 15 square meter in London or 20 square meter in London, being locked down for so long was actually was super hard on people. And at the time, nobody realized that, you know, you could move and all the things that we have today that are available. So like, I think 2020 was really hard on people. uh, And we've seen it here at Checkout, but we had a good year financially. So we ended up raising in May 2020 a Series B round. Then we ended up raising a Series C round when they were January 2021. And then we had yet another record year. Actually, we grew, you know, uh, the fastest we've ever grown in our company history in 2021, during the year 2021. And so that attracted more investors to a round that happened in between December and January of this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here we are, I'm speaking to you and, uh, you know, uh, uh, mean, Series D and uh, at one billion, like you mentioned before. 
and still believing that I'm scratching the surface of what you know we're capable of doing, uh, you know, here at checkout. Incredible timing. I mean, over the same course of time, fintech valuations globally have fallen what, like seventy percent, and and you're raising a billion. You're funded extremely well. You're hiring 150 people per month. How do you feel? Like, what, what's kind of the medium-term outlook? There's a lot of criticism around fintech not making a profit, being commoditized. Not your space, but different spaces. Is there consolidation coming, giving the valuation gravity, and it's harder to raise? What's happening in fintech land? So, I mean, on the valuation itself, one thing worth mentioning, because I think in fintech, you have two worlds. You have the B2C people who will go to consumer directly, which are the ads you see in the London tube quite often. And then you have the B2B people like us, where we only work with large enterprises. And so, and usually many of them are, I mean, we talked about fintech, but, you know, I said, you know, we have three of the mangs as customers. In Asia, we have NetEase, we have Tencent, we have Alibaba, we have ByteDance. So we have really the the big uh, players as customers as well. And so... I'd say they're a bit, um, I don't want to say like uh, agnostic to what happened in multiples, but their businesses tend to continue to grow. What I will say is this is, um, of course, market has collapsed. Mar- market goes up and down. That's a, you know, an investor thing because investors care about you know, exit multiples because they have an entry price, an exit price. We care about building an enduring company. So we care about our, how our net re- revenue is growing and having the right operating margin against that net revenue. Because if I grow net revenue and I'm losing a lot of money, that's the question that some people have asked. And, you know, we've been profitable for like nearly ever at this point. It is, a you know, uh, I have a competitor who's a Dutch company with a green logo. They have a very profitable business model. And we have a very profitable business model as well because we operate in the same space with, a, um, you know, a same type of clients. So that's, that would be on, you know, the, the valuation itself. And I think like, again, valuation is for people who care about entry point and exit point. We care about building the best business possible. In terms of what's going to happen in the market itself, you know, I like to say that I don't have a crystal ball, but certainly the, you know, the historical model of like, you can run a company and, you know, be loss making fully and like, you know, investors will throw money at you is likely to change. And not because, you know, uh, I know what the future is about, but it's pretty simple that if you have interest rates going up, money is suddenly worth something. So if I'm somebody who is, I'm a you know, capital allocator, I can make money out of my money, which today you cannot really do. And that's the reason there is so much you know, demand and kind of private placements type of strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you would imagine that, you know, like just being logical, if there is less money in VC or growth equity over a period of time, people will become more selective on what they invest in and companies that are more self-sustainable. But uh, I see this as a good thing uh, because at the end of the day, uh, um, when there's too much money in the market, even for us, I mean, and I'm happy for them, but like, you know, I have checkout employees who just because they worked here for three, four years, write a PDF and then go and raise a $5 million seat so they can do it like, uh, uh, well, like, they have no product. There was like no product, no team, nothing, not even the floor. It's which insane. The, the it's laptop, insane. The laptop and you go and you're given a chance. And I think, you know, I'm a very positive person. I was an entrepreneur. So anybody who, you know, leaves to go and build his own, co- own company, I will wish him luck. Most people don't know this. Actually, it's a funny anecdote. The, there's an app in the UK called Curve you know, uh, uh, the consumer card that allows you to combine all your cards into one. Mm-hmm. I think he's got 2 million users. So he's like non-insignificant. Non, non he was the VP of product at Checkout a few years back. Actually, when we were going through the processing platform build, so around 2013, 2014. And when he told me that he was leaving, I said, hey, and build his own company. I was like, I was an inter- I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. I know what it means to actually build a company. All I want is for you to be successful. And now... It's kind of funny to see him, you know, see his ads and the tube and like it and uh, out there, you know, uh, in the world. And, um, you know, entrepreneurship is good for society. We, I think it's good that young people take a chance, but it's true that right now, you know, a bit of rebasing on like, you know, access to money is probably going to be good for everyone, uh, including for us, check out as a, you know, company because it will make it slightly harder to, to leave. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And just talk to me about, you know, you are present in so many countries. There are not enough STEM grads. We need more people in technology. Like, how, how is that playing out? 
So, I mean, the uh, talent is an issue to every tech company globally. It's funny, like I always say to my people, okay, you have, when you have engineers, you're going to have tests and it's going to be pretty codified when we hire so many. But I always say to the HR team, could we, the talent and acquisition team, which by the way, I check out is I think 90 people at this point. So like, there's like, we have our own recruitment firm inside the company. Be honest about all the problems that we have, because I think the best engineers are quite often not only driven by money, they're driven by complex problems. And we have an honorable mission. You know, our, uh, our mission is to enable businesses and their communities to thrive in a digital economy. So we want to help both the global tech companies kind of scale, but also the people who are transforming. And here in the UK, it would mean people like Heels, if you want to, or like Sports Direct that are actually having big, like, you know, like uh, 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 online transformation journeys. And um, I think that, you know, we have a, a mission that people can relate to. And we have really complex payment problems to solve because from an engineering standpoint, it is challenging. And we can just maybe zoom in on this is that if we go back to our building a, a payments company, I'm not going to say is easy uh, when you process, I don't know, like, you know, a million transaction a month, but, you know, you're going to be what worst case scenario is what you get, what, 50, maybe 80, 100 transactions per second. And that already is like, you know, that'd be your biggest peak. And one thing that all merchants know is that you cannot use like, you know, AWS or hardware to scale. People don't send you an email to say, hey, by the way, I'm doing a, a discount like Lounge Now or FIFA is opening, you know, World Cup tickets for football sales. Uh, so actually, FIFA is a bad example because we know their date when they actually do it. But what I would say is, uh, uh, you know, many merchants don't give you like a heads up when they're actually doing something. And so you need to be able to have this extra headroom uh, for your customers. And so we are at a point where we need to be able to process 5,000 transactions per second. And when you're able to process 5,000 transactions per second from 50, from 100, it's not 50 times more complex, it's 10,000 times more complex because being able to do like these transactions, uh, obviously with a low latency and like every, you know, synchronous, uh, what becomes a synchronous service that is happening behind, you have some of the world's most complex technical challenges that run there. And funny enough, I mean, this is a, is a fun note is that I um, hired the CTO of Twilio, which is an SMS uh, API company. And Twilio at the highest peak was doing 135,000 SMS per second, which by the way, was like when Justin Bieber would launch a song and you could download <laughs> the song. I so remember those times. It is, a, yeah, man, I have a 13-year-old daughter, so she is also into Justin Bieber. But the one thing I will say, not me, by the way, but I get to hear this at home, but Funny enough is that what we had with Oit, and we talk about up-leveling the team, is somebody who has seen scale. Mm. Oit was the, is our CTO now and CTO of Twilio and Skype before this. He's seen scale. He's seen some of the technical challenges that we have. And a big part of our team was to basically, a big, big part of our, our change in the last two years was to build a team with people who have seen that scale. And, you know, uh, he's been with us now for, what, 15 months, 16 months. We're a completely different company from a tech and engineering perspective. You know, we've reached a level of discipline and performance mm. that we thought was unheard of. I mean, we've, he has opened our eyes on certain things. And I think this is where good leaders can really transform a company. And just, I mean, obviously, focus is tremendously powerful. At what stage are you thinking about, you know, transcending beyond payments? Uh, so we are already, so historically, it was about taking money in a business. So all what we call payment acceptance. Now it's taking money out of a business. So being, you know, we talked about TikTok paying the influencers of TikTok anywhere in the world. Uh, like, you know, the, the $10, $3 that, you know, somebody doing videos in Pakistan or other parts of the world would actually eventually do. Then you have everything that has to do with uh, issuing, which, you know, we, we, we don't talk about it too much because it's a better product for now. But we did issue on our technology about 80,000 cards uh, in, in January, I'm sorry. So at about an 80,000 card like run rate. And so I was telling you, we have a big fintech portfolio. So, you know, all the fintechs, especially the consumer ones, have in common that they have a card or they want to issue a card. So it's a very nice complementing product. But then obviously the, the long-term game is to go everything more into like, you know, treasury, which is mm -hmm. the whole aspect of like, you know, how do you, you have money moving in a business outside of a business, but what happens when the money is in the business? And that's everything to like, you know, working capital, to optimize the effects. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do there. Uh, a huge the last thing also maybe, because I mean, uh, here it's probably, I, I forgot it, but it's equally important is that historically, 
we have been working only with large enterprises. And what we were not touching in the enterprises were all the marketplaces. So all the people that have, you know, subsellers. Today, we've moved a lot more into this whole kind of we call integrated platforms kind of strategy, which is B2B to SMB. And so typically, you know, we have a, you know, a company in Europe called Molly, M-O-L-L-I-E, which is, you know, addresses uh, small merchants, SMBs. They are a customer checkout. So we have indirect contact to these SMBs, but we don't want to do the support. We, this is not what we're good at. So we do, the, we do payment infrastructures that we do very, very well at scale for very large merchants. Thanks. Thanks a lot for that, Guillaume. And, and just, you seem like a you know, very driven person. You work a lot. You're focused on impact. You're building a great, great, great company. You're raising money after a long time, you know, being scrappy uh, until then. Like what keeps you grounded? You're, you're also a billionaire. You, you, you know, clearly extremely successful. Like what keeps you grounded every day? So I'll say one thing the, you referred to the net worth. Money on paper is not worth anything. So that's one thing worth mentioning. Yes, we have, uh, you know, achieved a lot, but the truth is we are still at the beginning of our journey and the real test of the company is actually to be a public company. And so that's the way the mentality that we keep today uh, at any level uh, of this company, including with my children and my family where we still fly an economy. And I'll say one thing. So I think that's like really, really important. What keeps me grounded is definitely my family. I think it's something that is super important to me. I have three kids. We mentioned this and you're going to have different types of CEOs. There are CEOs in, I mean, you were in the London tech scene, so you know this probably firsthand, and we were talking about cooking just before this interview, but you have CEOs who love to network. They love to go and meet people and do all these like, you know, tech CEOs thing. Honestly, I would say I tend to don't care. I have this thing, which is like, I do like working. It's admittedly, you know, I, I'm unapologetic about it. And, you know, I'm not asking my people to work the hours that I'm working. I'm the CEO. I mean, it's different, but I enjoy what I'm doing. And one of the things I always say, even to, uh, in general, is that I optimize for happiness. And if ha- working makes me happy, I have the luxury of that. There's something at work I don't mm. like to do to go and either delegate this to somebody else or hire somebody to do it on my behalf. That's the reality. That's the it's a huge privilege. Yeah. It is a huge privilege. But what I can tell you is that I love solving complex payment problems for merchants. I really enjoy it. I, I love building the company, putting people together, shaping the culture, you know, building something that is building that are bigger than ourselves and building what, a legacy that people will remember as being, you know, like a good company, a company who has, you know, not monetized ignorance like some of the others or built like business models that are like, you know, monetizing SMBs and like, you know, taking money from people who, you know, you could be a lot more generous on the commercials. And the reality is that I'm grateful for all of that. That was your first question. So I'm super grateful for this. And I'm grounded because then I have, you know, the same childhood friends that I had, you know, when I was like, you know, a 10 year old, I have this really, I don't say like, you know, family who's there and surrounds me and with whom I'm able to kind of discuss, you know, like sometimes my kids ask me about, hey, about this or tech and like, you know, I have an eight-year-old, which when I started playing with computers, playing now with computers and taking coding wow. classes and like, That's amazing. now we, I have a way to relate to my, to my children in this. And then, you know, like uh, the last thing is that, you know, people always ask you, where do you blow steam off? I'm historically a big runner. I've always enjoyed running something. It's part of my life. I run 200 kilometers a month, every month. Wow. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's also you know- why you can eat. An, I, I joke about this. Running allows you, has two upsides. First of all, it allows you to take off your mind off anything. When you go there, you're like, it's like almost like some people have yoga, I have running and it like removes all the work, uh, like work thinking that I have. It's like, it cleans up your mind. And then the second thing, it allows you to eat a lot. <laughs> because it's I love amazing. Eating. I definitely love that benefit and run for so that reason. That's a, I think like that's something that is obviously important because admittedly, and you know, you and I were discussing is that. I love to be with the family, having a nice meal, you know, staying at home on the weekend and being all together. And quite often it involves food, eating and, you know, sharing good times, you know, good friends, good times, good food. Uh, and all of this, you know, as a, keeps you grounded. You don't, you, all the, you know, like it's a kind of tech scene. I'm not that interested in, to be honest. I'm the same, to be honest. I, I never, I never joined that. And just, just in a nutshell, give me one story about failure because you are so successful you know, if you zoom out too much, it looks like a straight line to 40 billion valuation. Talk about the hard times. I mean, I can give you there is so first of all, there's like failures every day. 
I was, I was talking to you about our integrated platforms that we can announce in beta uh, mid of last year and uh, is uh, uh, now like going into, you know, like full, uh, what do we call general availability for everyone over this summer. I was in 2016 talking about launching this product in 2017 to my whole company in all hands and like, you know, cheering up and saying, we're launching like, you know, marketplaces and integrated platform next summer. And, you know, it's just, it's like, <laughs> it's just like, but, but I mean, it's it's Parkinson's law, right? Work always expands to fill the time we allocate to it. And so I think setting these shorter deadlines makes so much sense. But sorry, I, I didn't mean to. No, no, it's a, it's a, the truth is like, you know, there's a lot of products that took much longer to build than we, we would have thought. One of the other things eventually, and I don't think this is a failure, huh? but I think it's, a, it's worth mentioning is that we took a long time to go to the US. And when you think the US is the largest e-commerce market, outside of China, so the market that you can, uh, uh, you know, um, access completely. China, you have all the Hong Kong merchants, which some of them have operations in China, but like, you know, think of Xi'an, you know, the retailers and others, or even Alibaba are trading through Hong Kong. But the reality is that you don't have access to the domestic Chinese market. In the US, the US e-commerce domestic market is giant. And we really started going there for like the last 18 months, but it's only 12 months that it's really like scaling up now very quickly. And I am hiring, I mean, we have now, you know, our, our New York office, we have our San Francisco office, and we are, uh, it's uh, something that when I look back, I should have probably been in, I should have allocated more thinking and mind share to the US from like 2015, 2016 and beyond and, and not focus only on this kind of Europe and Asia play that we had uh, for a long time. Thanks for sharing. And if you fast forward, I mean, you're a young guy, if you fast forward by 10, 20 years, what does success look like on a personal level? Do you want to sit on boards? Do you want to found the next company, run checkout.com forever? Like, you know, what, what's fulfillment? So uh, there's what I know I don't want to do. So actually, let's start with the basics. I don't want to go and fund another company. I mean, I think this is like, at this point, this is my fourth child. And like, I really enjoy running this business. And if I was to not, uh, if I was to lose, you know, the flame or like the, the energy that I have for this, it would probably be the time to go and focus on other thing and probably doing good, focusing more on my wife's philanthropy because I mean, she, she has that. And that's, you know, like something that I think is, is really, you know, if you can take all the learnings that you've learned in business and applying them to a good cause, uh, wow. you know, there's, there's definitely value to go and create there. And this is a scenario that others have done before me, including the person who invented, you know, uh, uh, Microsoft, but, uh, not, uh, but the truth is, the way I look at it for now, you ask me what, you know, where are we in 10 years from now? Hopefully I still have the same energy and interest in the company. And one of the things with uh, payments is just that you are uh, an integral part of the, you know, stack of your merchants. We are, you and I, we are like connected for every single transaction that books revenue to Gusto. And like, I think that what we want to be able to do is that we want to be able to uh, build products that our customers love. I think that's very important. This whole is product market fit. And if you look into banking in general, there's still huge pools of profits that are concentrated into banks where I think that they don't give you a lot of innovation for the profits that they're taking. Okay. Uh, and there is an argument that payment companies are the banks of tomorrow. Uh, and I mean, maybe not banks, but you know, we, we used to say historically that we wanted to be the future of banking. And by that, we wanted to say that we, we were trying to say is that we don't want to be a bank, but we want to rein, reinvent how people interact with financial services. And it doesn't mean that we should do everything ourselves, but because mm -hmm. we have basically access to your revenue, we're the financial partner for that revenue. That was the, you know, it puts us in a prime spot to go and build some of the products that, you know, you're using. And maybe we could do after, you know, um, that this chat, because you and I haven't connected in a while, a discussion of what are your biggest headaches as a merchant, you know, where do you see opportunity? Because your, your challenges is my opportunity. That's the Seriously. way I look And you know, Gusto, there are a hundred million Gusto meals being eaten across all of the UK. And obviously you're part of our stack and, and therefore you have visibility and it's, it's hugely fascinating. There's so much opportunity if you look at what relationships we still have with banks and what opportunities there are for you. Guillaume, just mindful of time, like as a last question, is there any person you're trying to emulate, any uh, entrepreneur that inspires you the most and why? Wow, that's a tough question. 
so like I said, I mean, I've always, uh, I've always played a bit outside of the kind of, you know, the, the standard or the, the normal protocol. We did our thing. We kept our heads down. We didn't look for any form of limelight. Then we ended up raising a big round. And by the way, the reason for the big round and actually raising more money also since was mostly because company like yours, when you see your revenue going through our bank accounts before your bank account, you want to make sure that we have a strong balance sheet. Uh, and, you know, Gusto is a very large company in the UK, but like, then you start thinking fans and others, they, they really want you to be cash rich on the balance sheet. Uh, they want you to be a solid, you know, partner. So a lot of our fundraising was obviously to be able to execute on a roadmap and, and everything else, but also just to have, you know, strength and balance sheet as a financial partner to some of the world's largest kind of tech companies. Now, to answer your question on the people I... So I mentioned him before, I'm a big, I mean, he is debatable as an individual for certain things, but I think Bill Gates is still somebody who is doing incredible good in the world. His uh, foundation is giving $6.5 billion a year to a range of cause. I mean, this is somebody who gave up his business at 53 uh, to go and spend 100% of his energy on doing this. You know, if more of the capitalists were caring about using probably the last 15 to 20 years of their life to, uh, you know, doing good, the world could be in a probably better place than we have it today. So, you know, he'd be one that I had uh, definitely uh, mentioned there. And then the other one, just because I think today we're doing another work when this is going to be published, but today Elon Musk bought Twitter. So I have respect for what Elon is doing and executing on a 20 year vision. Yeah. I think that, you know, as a, as a public figure, you have a duty to, you know, be a role model for others. So, I mean, you know, smoking weed on the radio or, uh, or like, you know, sometimes some of the comments he's saying on Twitter are, are questionable. I wouldn't do that. Certainly not. That's not what I believe in. But you need to give credit for, to the guy for running two companies, taking now Twitter private, doing all of this and doing all of this with kind of success. And what's amazing with Tesla is that he wrote the business plan 15 years ago, 18 years ago. You can Google the internet, find it and like read his and he's it's almost like we, you and I, we agree now that we're going to do this for the next 20 years in our companies. And 20 fast. years from now, we're looking at this and that. I have immense respect for that because we talked about focus and that gives you like, from mm -hmm. as a founder, he is exceptional. And so like, I think like that's, that's worth mentioning because the other thing I couldn't do is do run two companies. You know, like I said, I mean, I have between, uh, checkout is plenty enough for me. So I could not do the two companies. So I think two companies, now potentially three. It's incredible. And so, you know, Elon, if you ever hear this interview, you know, <laughs> I will, I'll leave your habits on the side, but what I'll say is that you're a pretty solid guy. So congrats for that. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Guillaume. And huge congratulations again. Uh, it's super fascinating what you're building. Positive impact on the planet. Amazing culture, huge ambition, long-term thinking, lots to love. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you again.